Well, welcome everybody to fellowship. Uh, the song that we just sung, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, is rather a strange partner uh, in the scripture that it's tied to, as Colin mentioned in Lamentations. So the chorus of the song is taken from the book of Lamentations, which literally is a, a book of laments for a ruined society. The chorus of Great Is Thy Faithfulness is taken from chapter three, verses 22 to 23 of Lamentations, which goes like this, as we just saw. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Bible commentator Paul House mentions a couple different themes of the book of Lamentations. One is, it offers compelling prayers that confess sin, expressing renewed hope, and declare total dependence on God's grace. And number two, it affirms God's faithful, never ceasing mercy. Therefore, readers can know that God is not finished with his people, even when they sin greatly. So today we're gonna to celebrate communion. And what I'd like to do is use the second and third verses of the hymn, Great Is Thy Faithfulness, along with the passage uh, from 1 Corinthians that tells of the Lord's Supper. So you might want to get your communion cup out and go ahead and remove the wafer from that. So here's the second verse of Great Is Thy Faithfulness. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun and moon and stars in their courses above, join with all nations in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see, all I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three goes like this. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Verse three, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He goes on in 1 Corinthians and then says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Let's pray. Lord, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. At this time, we're going to dismiss every young person that's uh, fourth grade or younger, and you can head out the back doors there on either side, and you can be dismissed for Children's Church. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church, and for those of you who are watching online, glad you could join us. I hope you were able to take some moments uh, with your family or maybe a group of friends and participate in uh, the Lord's table together and be reminded of what He has, um, has done for us. Um, let's, uh, let's just pause and pray a little bit more, shall we? And... Uh, just trust the Lord for uh, what he wants to teach us tonight. Let's, let's bow our head. Our Father, we are, we've been reminded that um, you are faithful, you are great, you are majestic. And your word says that even if we are faithless, you remain faithful. We're grateful, Lord, that um, you have done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that in your mercy and grace, your great kindness and compassion, you, um, Lord Jesus, you came to this earth and you died in our place. <clears throat> and we're grateful, Lord, that um, you took our place you were the substitute. You put our sin upon yourself and you died as a condemned sinner. You who knew no sin became sin. And then in the wonder of your plan, you gave us your righteousness as a free gift when we put our faith in you. And Father, thank you for declaring us right, justifying us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but simply because of your mercy. And we enter into a new relationship with you. We're grateful, Father, that um, your promises then become ours. You never leave us nor forsake us, and you lovingly... Um, discipline us, you work in our life, you, you draw us to yourself, uh, you have a plan for our life that will carry on into all of eternity. These things, Father, we find in your word. And as uh, it says, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, um, your word does not fail. So thank you, Father, that we can now spend a little bit of time and open your word, and I pray that you would lead us and direct our thoughts and enlarge our perspective of who you are. 
I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, I've <clears throat> got some more snow coming. Whoopee! And um, last, uh, last Sunday, as we were all enjoying that winter weather, uh, Lisa and I were enjoying some grandkids that were at our house last Sunday, and part of enjoying the grandkids uh, was playing the board game Settlers of Catan. Uh, how many have played Settlers of Catan? All right, well then you, you know a little bit what I'm talking about, the rest of you. Um, too bad, but you know, the, it's, a, it's a fun game, great fun. I was playing it with my little eight-year-old grandson. And it's great fun unless your eight-year-old grandson beats you. Uh, and beats you and beats you. And uh, it's humiliating, actually, is what it is. Um, you know, Grandpa may be many things. But Grandpa is not sovereign. And as much as I tried to get that little eight-year-old grandson to uh, conform to my suggestions, you know, where to put things, and he, he just never listened to Grandpa. <laughs> he just was going to play his own game, little stinker. And I tried to influence him, and it just didn't work. And then there was the roll of the dice. I mean, I, I needed a four and I'd roll a nine. <laughs> and then I needed a six, and I'd, I'd roll a ten. I couldn't control anything. I couldn't control him. I couldn't control the roll of the dice. I was not sovereign. And I'm certainly glad that God does not run the universe like I play Settlers of Catan. That his sovereignty is not limited by what others do or don't do. That his sovereignty is not limited by the capricious roll of the dice. Now, tonight I want to unpack a little bit more this idea of the sovereignty of God. It's a key truth that um, pervades Romans chapter 9. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9 again. We're continuing the study in the book of Romans. And the sovereignty of God is a really important truth found there in Romans chapter 9. Um, Paul has said in verse 2 of Romans chapter 9 that uh, he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. Why does Paul have great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart? Well, he goes on and explains that his people, the Jewish people, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, have rejected the Messiahship of, of Christ. He said, I wish I myself could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my, my kinsmen. The Jewish people had rejected the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And because of that rejection, they are under, as Paul wrote this, currently as Paul was writing this, the Jewish people were under the wrath of God. And not only that, as they're rejection of Jesus as Messiah was going to continue, there was a coming day of wrath and great tribulation that the Bible talks about that was coming upon the Jewish people. And by the way, next week, Don Den Hartog will be here um, and is going to unpack some things related to that. I'll be down at the uh, Shenandoah, FBC Shenandoah, uh, down at Woodstock, and Don will be here. Um, but there's a day of wrath that's coming. And not only that, if, if this 
if this rejection of Messiah continued and the temporal wrath continued, it was going to turn out to be eternal separation from God. No wonder Paul is saying, I have unceasing sorrow, deep sorrow, unceasing grief because of the Jewish people. Uh, these were people that, according to verse 4 and 5, who were Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the, the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, the Messiah. These were people who had everything going for them, spiritually speaking. They had been blessed as God's special chosen people. And yet, in spite of all these blessings, they had turned their back on Jesus, Messiah. Which raises the question regarding the character of God. How could God let this happen? He goes through all the work of, of pulling these slaves out of Egypt. He goes through all this work of, of raising up this special people, giving them laws, giving them prophets and calling them over and over again to follow him, centuries upon centuries. And here they hand over their Messiah to the Romans who crucify him and they're done with him. Has God's word failed? Did the roll of the dice kind of get all messed up? And when God wanted a 10, the two rolled. Has God's word failed? Well, verse 6, as you saw last week, Paul emphatically says, no. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And Paul continues then in chapter 9 and explains that, the last part of verse 6, you see, not all who are Israel are Israel. And we looked at these, these, um, these circles, the ethnic Jews, Everyone born in that, as a Jew, enters that, that circle of ethnic Israel. But Paul is saying, not all who are of Israel are of Israel. You see, there was a, a special group of Israelites, the spiritual Israel. People who had put their faith in Jesus, who had accepted Jesus as Messiah. And why is that circle so small? Why is Paul grieving over all those other people who are outside that, that circle of, of the spiritual Israel? Because they're under the wrath of God. And eternal separation is coming. Paul is grieving over this. Israel's failure to not be spiritual Israel their rejection of Messiah has to be explained somehow. But it is not as though God's word had failed. And what Paul does in Romans 9, 10, and into 11 is, is explain that Israel's failure is due to two things. The sovereign plan of God and the wrong choice of the Jewish people. Their irresponsible choice. Now tonight, or this morning, if you're watching this online, I want to talk just a little bit about 
this idea, this concept of the sovereignty of God. Let me give you a definition of a sovereignty of God. We talk about God's sovereignty. We're talking about that He alone possesses supreme authority and power and can exercise that authority and power in any way He so desires, always in accordance with His own character. Sovereignty of God has to do with God's divine authority and power. That He is unrivaled in majesty, unlimited in power, unaffected by anything outside of himself. He is totally free and independent of all things. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that God is subject to no one. He's influenced by nothing. Absolutely independent. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. No one or nothing can thwart his purposes or his plans. Now, there's some verses that teaches this, I think that, and this is really a brief, brief overview um, in this message. Uh, You know, we could spend a whole semester of theology class on just this concept of the sovereignty of God. Whole books have been written on it. But some verses that seem to indicate this idea is like Job 42.2. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So wrote Job when he was chastised and humbled by God. I know that you can do everything. Or Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And the psalmist went on in that Psalm 115 and says that the the gods of the worlds they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He's independent. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. Or there was another one, Psalm, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas, and in all the deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He does what He pleases. Now what is done, not always pleases Him. But God is sovereign. Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. God is sovereign. Nothing surprises him. Isaiah 45, verse 6 and 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. He is in control of all things. Or Isaiah 48, 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. Sovereignty. I will do my pleasure. Daniel chapter 4. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? These are the words spoken by the great king Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled when he elevated himself and God brought him down low and he groveled like an animal for seven years until he regained his senses. He was humbled and he said his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Because as Revelation 19, 6 says, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He's sovereign. Now there's so many other verses that we could look at. What are some implications of God's sovereignty? Well, sovereignty establishes God's right over all that he's created. God's right to rule. God's right to decide. God's right to have his will worked out in all his creation. The right to control, the right to, to rule the affairs of his creation. He may do whatever he wants to do with his universe because he's sovereign. He's the creator. Nothing can limit him. He's supreme. And the freedom of the sovereign is always going to be greater than, than the freedom of what he's created. When my will collides with his will, guess who wins? God does, because he's sovereign. It's a, it's, it's a natural outflow of, of divinity, the sovereignty of God. If God wasn't sovereign, then he wouldn't be God. If God didn't want something to happen, and it happened, then whatever caused that to happen would be greater than God. If God didn't want something to happen, and it did, then whatever caused that that he didn't want to happen to happen would be greater than God. God wouldn't be God. This past year, the most powerful and sophisticated nation on the planet was brought to its knees by a microscopic virus. And if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that no person in this world, no matter how wealthy or how in, intelligent or how physically fit, um, is sovereign over a microscopic virus. Only God is sovereign. God doesn't have to ever worry about anything or anyone foiling his plans. God never has to worry that the roll of the dice is going to show up something that he hadn't planned. 
God is God, and he's a sovereign God. Now, we come back to Romans chapter 9 and the issue of Israel. What about Israel? Was Israel's unbelief, was Israel's rejection of the Messiah, was that, you know, did that take God by surprise? I mean, it wasn't in the cards. I mean, it wasn't, that's not the way the game is supposed to be played. They're my chosen people. And I, I raised up Abraham, and through Abraham, and, and all the special people was to come so that the Messiah would come, and, the, and then all the, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This is how it's supposed to work. It's the way it's laid out in God's plan in Scripture, but it, but it wasn't working out that way. Was Israel's rejection evidence that God's word had failed, that God was something less than sovereign? And of course, to those questions, Paul provides a resounding no. As we saw a little bit last week, these verses that kind of show up here in Romans chapter 9, that Israel's rejection was actually part of God's sovereign plan. He gives that illustration of Jacob and Esau, twins, that came from Isaac and Rebekah. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. It wasn't because Jacob was somehow better than Esau. It wasn't that Esau had lived a poor life and wasn't trustworthy, and so God said, all right, I'm going to choose Jacob, before they had done anything good or bad. Because God had determined his choice, he said the older will serve the younger. God is God. I don't think we have a problem with this. Or in verses uh, 15 and 16, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. His conclusion was, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God, who has mercy. God is sovereign. In verse 18, he says, so then, he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. God is sovereign. He has the right over his creation. He calls the shots. Or verse 20 and 21, on the contrary, he says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Of course he does, is the logical answer. He's sovereign. He's God. He alone possesses supreme authority and power and can exercise that authority and power any way he so desires in accordance with his character. God is sovereign. Um, it's not that God looks ahead 
down the corridors of time and waits to see what man does and then says, okay, hmm, I think I'll do this then. Oh, and I sure hope that they follow through with what I'm seeing that they're going to do. Because if they don't follow through with what I I see they're going to be doing, then I'm going to have egg on my face. No, that's not how it works. But having said all of that, Romans 9 also teaches the other side of the coin. You see, on the other side of the coin of God's sovereignty is this truth of man's choice. Man makes meaningful choices, and he's responsible for those choices. So the last part of verse, chapter 9, starting in verse 30, addresses that. Well, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Well, guess what? The Jews didn't believe in him. They chose not to believe in him. Again, verse 32. They didn't arrive at that law of righteousness. They didn't achieve righteous standing before God. In other words, they never achieved the standing that God had required. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They attempted in their own religiosity, following the old laws. We've got this God, I think, I think we'll just work a little harder and we'll achieve righteousness. And they failed because they did not put their faith in Christ as Messiah goes on in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, their deliverance. Again, you get a sense that Paul is repeating himself with his unceasing grief, his, his deep sorrow for his people. I wish I could be separated from Christ. My heart's prayer, my, my deep longing, my prayer to God for them is for their deliverance. His people were under the wrath of God. And coming wrath was about to fall on them. And eternal separation was facing them. Oh, I pray that they would be delivered from the wrath of God. For I testify, verse 2, about them that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Where does the blame fall? What is the the reason for the rejection of the Messiahship among the Jewish people? It falls squarely on their shoulders. 
They did not pursue by faith. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, previous studies in the book of Romans, you see that, that concept of the righteousness of God, you can insert the concept of justification. They were achieving or attempting to achieve a right standing with God, to be declared right in a holy God's eyes by how they were performing. That's what the Jewish people were trying to do. That's what religious people do. You might be here tonight, you might be listening online. That might be what you still are trying to do. Earn a spot in heaven and some favor with God by trying to be good, trying to be righteous. It's a dead-end street. It never gets us anywhere because we can't ever achieve the righteousness of God through our human efforts. But there is a righteousness of God that is given as a gift. That was Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. And chapter 5, it's Christ's righteousness. A free gift. Jesus dies for us, pays for our sin. He takes our sin and then he gives us a free gift of his righteousness that's brought over to our account. It's received at the moment of faith. And we can either attempt to earn that righteousness by our good deeds and we'll always fall short. or we can receive the free gift of His righteousness simply by saying, thank you, Lord, I receive it by faith, putting our trust in Christ and Christ alone. The problem was the vast majority of the Jewish people stumbled over that message. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. You got this big group of Jewish people who didn't want to follow Jesus. There was that little circle of the, the spiritual Jews, a very small circle. The majority of the Jewish people had attempted to earn their righteous standing and they came up short. And Paul says only a remnant was going to be delivered. Only a remnant. Because you see, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, I've mentioned this before, that Paul was heavily influenced by the book of Isaiah. In fact, over in chapter 10, the last verse, our last two verses, uh, chapter 10, verse 20 and 21, he quotes Isaiah. As Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel... He says, all the day long I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. I want to turn to that chapter, it's Isaiah 65, to see where how Paul was so influenced by Isaiah chapter 65. So take your Bibles, turn back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, just to walk through this passage for a few moments. Isaiah 65, verse 1 says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. He's talking about non-Jews, Gentiles, 
a nation that wasn't seeking him, and that he permitted himself to be found by them. That's the Gentile nations, verse 2, but I've spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and, and burning incense on bricks, who sit among the graves and, and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. He's talking about the Jewish people. And they say, verse 5, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. And these are smoke in my nostrils. It's an irritant, God says. It's a fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. But their own iniquities and in the iniquities of their fathers, both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. The wrath of God. They have rejected him. This is 8th century B.C., Isaiah, the prophet, talking about. They've rejected God. A gracious God is spurned, and now a just God is going to act. Verse 8, And thus the Lord, says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, don't destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants, in order not to destroy all of them. Now he's talking about Israel again, the nation of Israel. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Achor a, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But, verse 11, you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set aside a table for fortune, and who will fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, and those Hebrew words, your King James Version has them out as Gad and Mene, those were, those were pagan gods that the Israelites were worshiping. So you, you, you put before the God fortune and the, you fill the cups of wine for destiny. Well, verse 12, I will destiny you. I will destiny you for the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Because I called and you didn't answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight. And you chose that in which I did not delight. Faithful Israel, my servants, a few of them, the majority of them, God is going to destroy. 
believing Israel, unbelieving Israel. There are not all Israel who are of Israel. There is believing Israel, a remnant, and there is unbelieving Israel. Two destinies. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will go hungry. The believing remnant will eat, the unbelieving will go hungry. Behold, my servants will drink the believing remnant, but you, the unbelieving, will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Verse 14, behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. Verse 15, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But, but my servants will be called by another name. Because you see, verse 16, he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. God says, I am a forgiving, gracious God. I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people, but you've, you've spurned me. I'm a forgiving God, but you want nothing to do with me. And therefore, the wrath of God will fall. The words we just read were the very words the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago had read. Paul studied these very passages, only in Hebrew. <laughs> this is what he read. And as he looks out over the, the masses of the, the Jewish people, his kinsmen, Jesus, who had walked this earth, that he performed miracles, he's, he displayed himself as the, the king. He was all the, all the prophecies he fulfilled. Born in Bethlehem, you know, raised from Galilee. All the prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. And they turned their back on him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Away with him. This Jesus, Peter said, was, was placed on that cross by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But you nailed him to the cross. No wonder Paul is saying, I have deep sorrow and unceasing grief. Paul knew what was going to happen to the Jewish people. Jesus had said it. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. Wrath to the utmost is coming. And again, next week, Don is going to unpack more of this. Two destinies. Romans, again, chapter 9, verse 22, talked about God willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Unbelieving Israel, believing the small remnant of Israel. But there's hope. Verse 17 of Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. You see, verse 16, the former troubles are forgotten. They're hidden from my sight. Verse 18, 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Verse 20, no longer will there be in the in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of, of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. And they will build houses and inhabit them and they will plant vineyards and eat the fruit and they, they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat it. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Verse 24, and it will come to pass that before they call, I'll answer them. And while they're still speaking, I'll hear them. And the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Oh, is, is, is God just shaking the dice and rolling it out there and say, Oh, I hope, 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 I hope it happens. Now, what we just read is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. No time and period in Israel's history where what we just read has been fulfilled. You see, it's a coming time. And Paul is going to tell us about that in chapter 11 of Romans. And he's going to tell us just what we've just read. Indeed, one day all Israel is going to be delivered because guess who's coming back? The Messiah. The Deliverer is going to come and he's going to restore all these things. Because as Paul will say in chapter 11, you see the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. His word does not fail because he's sovereign and he's merciful and kind. The word mercy is found 11 times in the book of Romans. Nine times in Romans 9, 10, and 11. In the midst of the backdrop of this sovereign God who does whatever he pleases. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. He hardens whoever he hardens. Against the backdrop of the sovereignty of God is a God of mercy and grace and love. And as Isaiah said in verse 2 of chapter 65, with outstretched arms... He is the sovereign God of outstretched arms. Inviting people to receive a free gift. How do you explain Israel's rejection of their Messiah? Well, it wasn't because of the roll of the dice came up bad. It was because a sovereign God determined that to be so. It is part of a sovereign plan that he's unfolding even to this day. And as we'll see in Romans chapter 11, the conclusion of that plan for the Israeli people. But Paul also holds the Jewish people responsible. Their irresponsible choice of not accepting Jesus as their Messiah. 
they did not receive the free gift by faith. All day long, God has stretched out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And they spurned God. Romans 9, 10, 11, like Isaiah 65, tells us of a sovereign God who has outstretched hands ready to save. Have you received that free gift? Have you seen his outstretched arms for you? Have you received a free gift that he's offering you tonight? The free gift of eternal life? The choice is yours. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will be delivered will have everlasting life if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior I want to invite you to do it right now transfer your trust off of yourself and unto God the free gift that he offers the payment that he made, what we've celebrated tonight in the communion service, the privilege that we've had is all because a sovereign God has planned it. He's carried it out. Nothing can thwart his plan. And he offers the free gift of eternal life. But before we pray tonight, let me ask you this question too as believers. What kind of God are you trusting in? What kind of concept of God do you have? Is it a bit unnerving to read verses like we read earlier of a God who does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases? And we look at our life or maybe this past year or other experiences of our life and we wonder, why did that happen? We have people in this congregation right now who are going through some very extreme suffering. You mean God is sovereign over this? Is His mercy still fresh for me? Is His faithfulness true to me? See, every one of us have to ask the question of ourselves, what, what's our view of God? What's our view of God? And I'll guarantee you, folks, you're not going to get a view of God shaped by a 35, 40-minute sermon once a week. It's not going to happen. You've got to get into the Word. You've got to find and wrestle with, who is this God? What is my view of God? Who can I trust? Does my view of God align with His self-revelation? Is He a sovereign Lord? Is He my merciful high priest is he my compassionate God who is supreme ruler of all that is a lifelong journey and just maybe tonight maybe something said will stimulate that journey for you to be a little deeper into who God is let's pray father
the privilege that we've had of participating in the Lord's table was a privilege that you gave us that came out of the rejection of Israel. As we'll find out more in your book of Romans. We are, in many respects, Lord, on the receiving end of this grace and mercy because of a sovereign plan of Israel's rejection. I pray, Father, that we can, um, that we would be willing to um, um, stretch our, our thinking or allow you to stretch our thinking as to who you are what you've accomplished of why you've accomplished it and whether we like sometimes what we read or don't like what we read that you'll give us the the faith to accept who you are and bow the knee before a sovereign king who does always as you please only as you please for your glory. We pray these things, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.